As Fred said in his reminder email to us that we want to begin in chapter 12 here of our study, the book of Acts. Um, this chapter is uh, a chapter for it to completely be understood. You have to let me deal with some history, okay? So I'm going to give you some of the historical background of what uh, what is going on here and why uh, some of the things happening are happening the way they're happening. That's probably not very good grammar, but that's what we're going to be dealing with. We're introduced in the, the first verse of chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now let me... Uh, give you some background here to what's going on. Um, the name Herod, or the proper name, or even the, the title Herod, uh, is not unfamiliar to you, I'm sure. When you see the term Herod, or the name Herod, you probably think of Christmas, because uh, Jesus is born during the reign of Herod the Great. This is not Herod the Great. Um, let me tell you a little bit about what's going on here. Now, you know, I don't expect you to take notes on this unless you really want to, but I think it's, it's helpful for you to understand the historical background because Luke is recording this as history. He's done the research. He's recording this history. It's important for you to note that he's called uh, Herod the king. This is the grandson of Herod the Great. Uh, if you know anything about the history of this period, Herod the Great, his grandfather, was an Idumean. He was not a Jew. He was an Idumean. They had moved into that southern part of Judah during the Babylonian captivity, the Edomites, descendants of Edom, of Esau, and claimed it. And then as a result, a number of Jews intermarried with these Edomites and Herod's family was the product of that. So he's not a full Jew. He, has, he was not an authentic king of the Jews. Rome made him king of the Jews. And uh, as you probably know, because there are lots of important uh, stories about him, he had befriended the Roman Empire, was close to Augustus, uh, Caesar, Caesar, Caesar the Great's nephew. And um, he ruled with the favor of Rome. And he built enormous uh, port cities, rebuilt cities, rebuilt the temple. Um, but when he died, it was a crisis. He died in 4 BC, and uh, his will was taken to Caesar Augustus and opened in Rome, and Caesar Augustus approved the will. His empire, Herod the Great's empire, would be divided into three parts. And I won't go into the details, but one of his sons, Archelaus, gets Judea. Now, in one sense, that was the most difficult part to rule. <laughs> uh, another son gets Galilee and that region at Herod Antipas, and then another son gets a little bit farther to the north and to the east. That's Philip, who becomes Herod Philip, or Philip Herodias. And he's ruling in a Gentile region. But Archelaus has to rule the Jews, and he has to rule Jerusalem. And he was an incompetent ruler, so Rome deposed him in A.D. 6. And they made the whole area of Judea a Roman military province. And the, the military and governor of that Roman military province um, lived in Caesarea. 
And you are very familiar with the most famous of those Roman governors. What was his name? Pontius Pilate. And they ruled from Caesarea, but at times, usually the feast days and special times, they would come to Jerusalem. When Herod, uh, when Archelaus was deposed and the Roman governors ruled, that lasted until you get into the 40s, A.D. 40, when this guy, Agrippa, he's called Herod Agrippa I, and he is named King of the Jews. And the Roman military pull out, and the Roman governor uh, and ruler are called procurators, but that ends. And so he is truly ruling this as the king. How did that happen? Because this man, Herod Agrippa, was a really good friend of two emperors, Emperor Caligula and Emperor Claudius. Claudius is the emperor at this time. He grew up with them. His father had sent him to Rome to be educated, and so he grew up in Rome. It was in his mid-20s that he leaves Rome, and he played as a little kid with Claudius. So he really knew him well. So the emperors, the Caesars, because he knew him well, names him the new king and pulls out the governing authority. So this guy's really important, and he's amassed a lot of support. He is very, very, very friendly with Rome. They love what he's doing. He's very good friends with the Jews, and he is very close to the Pharisees. So when it tells us that he begins to persecute the church. Why is he persecuting the church? To earn favor with the Jews. So this, when, when Herod Agrippa I, and again, the Herod there, and that'll be on next week's quiz, is Herod Agrippa I. And he's the grandson of Herod the Great, but he is a competent ruler. I mean, he really is. He's a very good ruler. But he earns the favor of the Jews. And when, when the text, you see that there in verse uh, 3, that doesn't mean uh, you know, all the Jews. It means the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, all those guys. So in arresting and dealing with the church, it's a political favor to the Jews. Because they don't want the church to grow in Jerusalem. And Herod Agrippa as long as he's got the support of the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, he's happy. So what does he do? Number two, verse two, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now that's his brothers, John. They're the sons of Zebedee. You always read about them during the Gospels, James and John. This is not James, the brother of Jesus. This is James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. So he kills him. And then, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And so this, this double whammy is devastating to the church in Jerusalem from a human perspective. Because James, a very important leader, is dead, martyred, and now Peter is arrested. <clears throat> this was during the days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, why is Luke telling us that? Well, he's telling us that for a couple of reasons. Number one, this is a major holiday in the Jewish scheme of things in their whole year. So that's why Herod Agrippa is in Jerusalem. And it's also a time when there are a lot of soldiers in Jerusalem because this is the beginning of the year, the Jewish year, the Jewish calendar. It starts with Passover and then flows right into the Unleavened Bread Feast. 
So this is a really big time of the year. There's a lot going on in Jerusalem. And that is what Luke is telling us. He arrests him at the time of a lot of Jewish fervor, a lot of Jewish excitement. And so for the Jewish leadership to have Peter out of the way, oh man, this is fantastic. Verse 4, and when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. That would be 16 soldiers. Now, um, because I have the board here, I'm going to take advantage of this. I'm going to make this a perfect rectangle. It is not a perfect rectangle. It's very, it's oblong, about 39 uh, acres. But on the northwest corner of Temple Mount is a facility called Antonia Fortress. This is a major governmental facility of Rome. It was built by Herod. It had four, like, um, little pillars at the top to so very easily recognize it. And this is where, when the Roman governor was not in Caesarea, this is where he would stay. And this was, a, this was also a prison in the basement. Uh, when Pontius Pilate, remember Pontius Pilate twice had a trial for Jesus? I don't know if you remember that. He had six trials, two of them with Pontius Pilate. It was held in this facility. This is Antonio. This is where Peter's in prison. And one of the reasons that's important, because it was very high, Roman soldiers would watch what was going on in Temple Mount. So he's in this Antonio Fortress, and if I could get you all on a plane, we go to Jerusalem, we go to the church of Ecce Homo, where you go down to the basement of that, and you see the main floor of Antonio Fortress. It's really neat to see it. I mean, it really is. It was quite a facility. So this is, um, this is very public, and there's lots of people in Jerusalem so Peter is arrested, and he's guarded by 16 soldiers. That sounds like overkill, doesn't it? <laughs> but, I mean, that's really important because they, it gives you an idea how much Herod Agrippa wants to make sure Peter doesn't escape. And so it explains to us, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people, meaning to the Jews, the Jewish people, just like they did with Jesus and ask for a verdict of execution. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was being made by God to God by the church. So you have Peter in prison, guarded by 16 soldiers, and you have the church in Jerusalem praying for him. And what happens is really kind of neat. Joel? Just before you get into that, um, why... Uh, so you had James killed. It's that's a great question. I'm not sure we know that. I mean, it doesn't explain to us why. But the assumption is Peter is a much more public figure, much more widely understood to be a key leader of the church. James is not. Now, the brother of Jesus, James, who writes the epistle, is prominent and will replace Peter. And he will be the head of the Jerusalem church in, in just a little bit. But it seems, because of what he tells us, to take him out to the people, the assumption is that the people would ask. Because remember, these are, for the most part, Jewish people. And the assumption is most of the Jewish people haven't accepted this Jesus guy. That they'll call for his execution, just like they did Jesus. Why was he executed by the sword, not stone, not crucified? 
Why? What's the significance of it? That, that's a great question because what it does not say to us is who killed him. Uh, it's not probably the Sanhedrin, and it's not probably the temple police. We're assuming that Herod Agrippa had him executed by one of his henchmen. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to put him on a cross. He just executes him with a sword. And that was stoned. doesn't have him stoned. Kills him with a sword. I thought the sword was for the Roman citizens. Oh, that's right. But but remember, this is Herod Agrippa the first, king of the Jews, carrying out the execution. This isn't Rome carrying out the execution. I mean that. I mean that's the difference. It's a subtle difference, but it's a difference nonetheless. He could have had him stoned. He could have asked Rome to crucify him. But the, the sense of the language is that Herod Agrippa had it carried out by his direct order, one of his henchmen. One of his, a little bit like what MSB did to Jamal Khashoggi in the consulate in Turkey two weeks ago. I, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you don't follow the news. But it's really a big deal what happened. Is it the, the starting would mean that the Jews would have blood on their hands? And yes. crucifixion, you didn't want them hanging there as a symbol? Is that some of the pieces of it? I think that's probably... It was presumably done somewhat secretly under the... Under the... You know, CNN isn't going to record this one. So uh, there's, uh, there's a kind of unwritten rule that... Uh, Especially public executions. I mean, big deal executions. That's why he wants to wait till after this feast day's over to bring Peter out. So, as we read what verse verse three, Herod Agrippa the first is doing this to please the Jewish leadership, and they could not be more ecstatic that Peter is in prison. I mean, they they. They couldn't be more pleased with that. But there's one variable that they did not take into consideration. Prayer. Verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, which would mean at the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is seven days. So whether Peter was arrested at the very beginning, or, or and so the feast is going to be over. So that very night, the next day, he was going to bring him out to the public. That very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So what does it mean? Two he's chained to, two are guarding the prison door, because they, they would serve in shifts of four. So there are 16. So you can just you can just do the math and see how that works out. So, I mean, this guy, they did not want this guy to escape. He chained the two soldiers, and two do- soldiers are watching the door. Verse 7, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood be- next to him, meaning Peter. A light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side. And that's pretty strong verb in Greek. I mean, he just didn't touch him. I mean, he, like, hit him, presumably to wake him up. Woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Now, you're probably thinking, now wait a minute, what happened to the two Roman soldiers who were on the other side of the chain? It doesn't tell us, but either they're asleep or the angel put them to sleep. I mean, it just doesn't explain it. And the angel said to him, dress yourself 
uh, it doesn't mean he's naked. It just means put on, put on your belt, and then he'll tell him to put on his cloak. Put on your sandals. Wrap up your cloak around you. I'm continuing, and follow me. As he went out and followed him, he did not know what was being done by the angel was real or whether he was seeing a vision. I mean, you know, he's still trying to wake up, trying to figure out what's going on. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. Now, Antonius Fortress, it would be a gate. There are a series of steps there that goes out into the city, not Temple Mount, but into the city. And so that's, that's where the angel is taking him. <clears throat> I lost my place. It opened for them on its own accord. They went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, that's how the ESV translates it, but, I mean, now he's, you know, the sleep has been rubbed out of his eyes. He's figured out what's going on. This is real. He said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel, rescued me from the hand of Herod, and from all that the Jewish people were expecting, which we infer means probably that he would be executed. Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. This is John Mark. He will write the second gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the Mark who writes the second gospel. <clears throat> he was also a very good friend of Barnabas, and he will be a part of first missionary journey. And in the second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas will separate over him. Paul doesn't regard him as trustworthy because he had left during the first missionary journey. That's just part of the whole context. Where many were gathered together and praying, verse 13. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, now we are assuming that the mother of John Mark is a widow, but probably wealthy. I mean, to the degree you can think of wealth in that time. But she would have a larger house and would be a like a little garden and then a gateway that would lead out into the street. That's where he is. He's not banging on the door of the house. He's banging on the gateway that gets into the garden, which then leads to the house. A servant girl named Rhoda, which means rosebud, Rhoda came to answer. Recognized Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Now, that's really remarkable, but, you know, she's so excited, she forgets to let Peter in, she runs and tells everybody. So two scenarios are now floated by the people in this fairly large home. Scenario number one, you're out of your mind. Scenario number two, she kept insisting it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. <laughs> These are people of great faith, aren't they? They've been praying and praying and praying. The prayers answered, they don't believe it. It's, you're out of your mind or it's an angel. Don't be too hard on them. You and I would probably be the same way. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, and you can see something like that, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Now that's James, the brother of Jesus. James, who will author a little epistle of James. And James, this is really important information Luke is telling us. 
James is emerging as one of the key leaders of the Jerusalem church. As a matter of fact, James is going to replace Peter. Because the text tells us then he, meaning Peter, departed and went to another place. Peter's going to disappear from the scene for a bit. And so, and that's important. Peter is fading out of the picture in Luke's account. And it's getting us ready for the next chapter. Or who's going to come on center stage? Paul. So Peter is, uh, sorry, Luke is, and correctly, he's telling us the history of what happened, but he's also explaining why is there not going to be much of an emphasis on Peter anymore. Instead, the emphasis is going to start to shift to Paul because the next chapter, chapter 13, is the first missionary journey. So this transition is going on now, and that's what Luke is trying to uh, re- record for us. You just have to, please forgive me. No, it's fine. You went way too fast for me to take notes. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Too many Johns, too, too many James. Okay. Can you break down again the, which John wrote the Gospel of John? Yeah. Well, John, the John who wrote... That's good. That's good. I, I'm, uh, you're, you're right. Okay. First of all, in verse 12, the John there, John Mark, who is the writer of the second gospel. He will also be a part of the team in Paul's missionary journey, the first missionary journey. Now, the James that was murdered, we read about that in verse 2, is the brother of John, and that John is the writer of the gospel, the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. They're the sons of Zebedee. Now, the James, <laughs> the James that was killed was uh, the son of, uh, of Zebedee, but the James of verse, what is that? Verse 14 is the brother of Jesus. And he will author the epistle of James, uh, as you know. And by this time, by the time where we are in terms of, of uh of the history, it's about A.D., probably about A.D. 43. We're crossing from A.D. 42. Into, the reason I, there's a little bit of, is because Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread begin a new year. So it's probably A.D. 43 is where we are here in time. And Peter is slowly fading out of the picture. That doesn't mean he's not doing things. We're not sure where he went. When it says to another place, where does he go? We know he was in Corinth for a while. We know he was in Antioch for quite a while. We also know he was in Rome near the end. So we don't know where he went. But he's going to be off the scene until you get to chapter 15, for the most part. We have a word here, uh, going back to verse um, 5 of this chapter. Where it says, So Peter uh, was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made, and... We didn't really address that word too too much, fervently. And so, uh, can you explain perhaps what might be the difference as, as we think about sometimes how we pray, and if that matters to God, and if answers matter as a result of that or not? Do you want me to give a long discourse of prayer? That's kind of what <laughs> well, you're, I just, the way you're you asking. You know, because we sit no, down yeah, and then yeah, down to yeah, sleep, yeah, you know, yeah, and then we go yeah, to bed. Yeah. But, um, I mean... Well, the ESV translates that word earnest, or you could translate it fervent, or you could pr- translate it persistent. 
So it isn't, I mean, it isn't so much the, the amount of time, Fred, that's being stressed here. It's more the expectancy and the persistence and the faith. This is on their mind, and they're, they're just bringing it to the Lord persistently. And um, again, it, it, we, as I said a moment ago, he's arrested, Luke tells us, at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and he's arrest, he, he, the plan of Herod Agrippa is to let him go at the end. So that's seven days. So I think the text is encouraging us to think that during that seven-day period, if, if we're right there, he, they are persistently, fervently praying. That doesn't mean every hour they're praying, and you know, it's a seven, 24-hour day prayer meeting, but it just means this is a major thrust of their con- concerted corporate praying for Peter. So consistency and persistency sometimes... Well, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, that's a good, both those were consistent and persistent pray, praying. Jesus, Jesus stresses that, encourages us to do that when he tells the story of uh, a widowed woman who goes to a judge and the judge won't hear her case. And what does she keep doing? Banging on his door. Now, J- Jesus is not saying that's how you look at God. He's stressing one thing, persistent Prayer. Don't give up. Keep praying. Just because you don't see an immediate answer, don't conclude God isn't working. I mean, that's kind of what Jesus is saying at that time. So, we we would assume here that when when they just when Luke uses that one word, earnest or fervent or even per- persistent, could be translated. For these seven days, this is the major thing. This corporate group in the house of Mary, mother of John Mark. That that's what they're that's what they're praying. And they're amazed that God answered. <laughs> At least they're amazed that God answered this way. That's one of the things, too, and I know, I'm sure this has happened to every single one of you. You're praying about a particular issue or item or for someone or whatever it is, and you just the whole way you're praying is you just expect God to answer this way. And it ends up he answers in a totally different way. He still answers but in, in a way that we don't always know how he's working and, and so on. Um, it's just, that's a, that's a great question. It's, it's an exciting thing to think about. But as we've already read, at the same time, they can't believe that God's answered the prayer. You're out of your mind, Rhoda. That's not Peter. And then this must be a ghost. It must be his angel. It can't be Peter. He's still in prison. I mean, after all, he's got 16 guards in four-hour shift watching him four by four by four. It's a miracle. But as I mentioned now several times, Peter pretty much disappears from the scene. That doesn't mean he's not active. It just means from what Peter's doing, he's trying to set us up for the transition to the final part of Acts 1-8, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that will be Paul. Paul will focus on that. All right, there were a couple of good questions. Any others in terms of what happens? It's a great, uh, great passage. As we see here, as you would expect in the next verse, verse 18, now when the day came, meaning the day to bring Peter out and carry out his plan, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what became of Peter. 
I would have guessed so. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death, which uh, is very normal and it's pretty horrible when you think about it, but a normal practice in the ancient world. Someone that was to guard somebody, if that person escaped or were rescued or whatever, uh, you would pay for that with your life. Then he went from down. He went from Judea to Caesarea and spent time. Now again, why is he doing that? Because the feast days are over, the holidays over. So he goes back to Caesarea. There's a palace there. It's a big. It's in ruins now. But there's a big palace where they stayed, Herod's palace, and this is his grandson. He would have stayed, so he goes back there. All right. Again, that's. Uh, an important section and it comes alive I think a little bit more if we do with some of the history which we tried to do one more thing Luke wants to tell us what happens to Herod Agrippa he's persecuting the church he's killed James he arrested Peter with the intent of killing him at the behest of the crowd verse 20 now Oh, please. They're saying that after he put the, the guards to death, Herod went. Down. Herod goes to Caesarea. That's right. That's good. Clarify that. This isn't Peter, it's Herod. Now, the first two verses, again, it's Luke just jumps into this, but there's some history here that makes this, I hope, clear. You'll notice... In verse 20, Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you look, a number of your maps will show you this, but if you look on the one on page 5, for example, you'll see, it's right along the coast, you'll see Tyre. Tyre, these are, this, these are Phoenicians. This is a Phoenician area. These are not Jews. They're Phoenicians. So anyway, Herod, as was a normal thing, had a trading agreement with them. And this trading dispute, or this trading agreement, has led into a dispute. There's some controversy. It involves food. It, in, it involves the trading of um, the kinds of things that sustain life for people. And so it's the nature of this, the exact details of this, we don't know. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. That's up north, the Phoenician area. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, he's the closest advisor to King Herod Agrippa, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food, meaning Herod Agrippa's country. Kind of the breadbasket in eastern Mediterranean was a big part of, of Israel, what we call Israel, Galilee particularly, very rich farmland. And so whatever was going on in the trade, Herod had shut off food. For whatever the reasons were, trade had stopped. So they asked for this to be resolved. I don't know exactly how it was resolved, but it was. So there's a big celebration. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. Now, we think this is March of A.D. 44. It's about a year later after what had happened with Peter. 
And it's the beginning of regional games. And so these two things are coming together, the settlement of this peace and commercial agreement and these games. And so Herod takes advantage of this. Herod Agrippa I. And he goes in to the huge, it is enormous, the huge theater. I wish we could get on a plane. It's, it's there. It's been rebuilt. We know exactly where it is. We know exactly what it is. There's a huge area in the front. And so here's Agrippa. He comes into the theater where thousands of people from Caesarea are gathered. And what does it say? He's wearing his royal robes. Josephus tells us that this royal robe was knit together with silver and gold because the sun is out in Israel about 340 out of 365 days a year. What do you think that looked like as he walks into this theater with the sunshine sparkling? It's dazzling. And he delivers an oration to the people. So he's intentionally dressing in all this elaborate uh, robe and, and just embellishing his role as the king. And how do the people respond? The voice of a god, not of a man. Herod Agrippa I had kind of reached an apex. The pride and arrogance and defiance of everything that the Jewish people stood for. He's, he's turning his back on all of that. And so verse 23, immediately the angel of the Lord struck him down. An angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Luke tells us he died a very gruesome death. Now history tells us he didn't die that day. It was several days later that he died. But just what Luke is describing, this man died a very gruesome death. The reason? He took the place of a god. He's mimicking God, and nobody can, God will share his glory with no one. Verse 24 is a very distinct word of contrast. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So if you take the whole context of chapter 12, Herod Agrippa I, to please and gain favor with the Jewish leadership, takes out after the church. Does it work? No. As a matter of fact, it has an opposite impact. The word of God increased and multiplied. That is the strange, apparent, seeming contradiction in history. As persecution of the church increases, the church grows. Tertullian in the late second century, about 180, will write a book and he will write, The Blood of the Martyrs is the Seedbed of the Church. And by the end of the second century, this is what he's observing. That's still early. But that, that is, there's, a, there's some truth about that in terms of history. And it, it boils down, I think, essentially to in the time of persecution, you have to decide what, what is really important in my life. I represent Christ. I'm promoting the gospel in a very antagonistic, life-threatening situation. The Lord wants me to do this, and even if I pay with my life, it's still what God wants me to do. And that, that, that 
kind of energy and enthusiasm and passion is contagious. I told you the story, that's a little later, but not much later, of Polycarp. You know, the, he was the leader, the bishop of, of uh, one of the cities, the seven cities of Revelation, actually, Sardis. But that story is a great story because as he was dying at the hands of the Roman military governor, his church wrote down what he said. And that is available in a lot of sources that just Google Polycarp and Google his speech, Polycarp's speech. And I'll tell you, it's, an, it's a magnificent thing to read. And you just say, what, what a model that was for his followers because he clearly knew he was going to be killed. But as he is, as he is talking to the Roman military governor, the Roman military governor says, if you, don't, if you don't recant of your belief in this Jesus, I'm going to burn you. And he says, listen, you burn me, I'm going to be with Jesus. But the fires of hell are going to consume you. You've got to choose what you're going to do with Jesus. I don't know if I'd have the boldness to say that. But, I mean, that's what he was saying. He turned what that moment military governor was threatening. Hell awaits you if you don't repent and turn to Jesus. So, I mean, it's that kind of courage when, when, when your flock sees you dying like that, as his flock did in that church. He becomes an inspiration, and they're so moved, they write it down. And it's one of the great testimonies of martyrdom we have in the church, in Polycarp. So, bringing to hell with you, it's kind of a curse, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Although it's usually not said in that quite that same way Polycarp meant it, but... It's not righteous. Right? Yeah, I mean, if if you can, if you have the authority to say that in righteous indignation, speaking for Christ, yes. But most of the time, it's said out of anger and viciousness. But in a way, it's. Well, you could say go to hell, or you could say to hell with you. you know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is not quite the same thing Polycarp was saying. <laughs> I just want to make sure that distinction is clear there. I have another question. Yeah, please. It says he was eaten by worms and died. Is that how his death occurred, by the eating of the worms on him? That's a great question. It, um, it's generally, I mean, we don't know for sure, but it's generally understood that probably what, what happens here is he— he gets some kind of a disease or some kind of a sickness. Immediately, God strikes him with that. And it's so debilitating that he actually, that his flesh is eaten by worms. And that, whether it's the disease or the worms, but they go together. Sometimes uh, in jungle areas and so on, that can happen in terms of diseases. Why it happened to Herod, the text is very clear. God does this to him as judgment. But it would have been a pretty gruesome death for him. He was a very powerful man. If an angel, God shows up and says, you're, you're done, it was supernatural. They can do whatever. whatever yeah, they want yeah, they yeah. Can, graphic, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there have been attempts to explain this medically, and I don't think that's necessarily wrong. But Yeah, yeah. All right, now, we're making the transition as I said, Luke is making the transition to Saul. Verse 25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem 
when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. The same John Mark, whose mother we saw in verse 12. Now, you have to go back earlier in chapter 11. Barnabas and Saul had taken an offering down to Jerusalem, where the church is suffering due to a famine during the reign of Claudius, and also because of persecution. So now, where are they? They're back in Antioch. It doesn't tell us that in verse 25, but they're back in Antioch. And that sets us up for chapter 13, which is the beginning of the first missionary journey of Paul. All right, we don't usually get a whole chapter done in one class hour, but we did today. So let's see if there are any questions. All right, where is Antioch today? Well, uh, it, it's the same place. It's the same. It's the same on your map. There are a couple of maps where you can see it. The same, but today there is the modern day Antioch, which has basically been destroyed by the Civil War, and there are the ruins of ancient Antioch. Is that what you're asking me? In what country? Syria, the country of Syria. That's why a lot of these wonderful sites, including in Damascus and so on, that are so important. You used to be able to, and it's always a little difficult, but you used to be able to take tours of these areas. They've been destroyed by the Civil War. It's, just, it's absolutely horrible what has happened in Syria today. It was one of the, next to Israel, it was probably one of the, because Syria was so important to the Roman Empire because of its location. It was a province of, of the empire. And there was, there's so much there. And it's just really tragic. So much of those has been destroyed. Do you remember what ISIS did to Palmyra? Yeah. Which is more out in the, in the desert area. It's horrible what they destroyed there. But uh, it's tragic. But it's in modern-day Syria. And Antioch, there's the modern Antioch, and then there are the ruins of Antioch, which is the Antioch city uh, where, where Paul is. Jim. I have to go back to Fred's question. Either I didn't understand what your response was regarding the fervency of prayer oh, okay. and the implications that has for moving God's hand. So... I'm not sure, I mean, fervency to me implies significant emotional engagement and expression. And some of us aren't very emotional, and some of us are very Pentecostals, for example, very emotional, very expressive. So is there, I mean, is there some connection between kind of that magnifying of emotion and the movement of God's hand, or in someone who's not emotional and just as genuinely desirous of God acting? Is he at some disadvantage? Uh, you understand what I'm saying, I think. Well, I think I do. Uh, that's why I, I'm a little uh, more adept to translate it, the ESV editors translate it, earnest, not fervent. That, I mean, I think that just catches a little bit. Of, and the reason I say that is because I really, I really can't find anywhere in scripture that we are commanded to be terribly emotional when we pray now many times we do I mean I'm sure all, I've been there have been tears when I've been praying sometimes to the Lord for whatever the case is and whatever the situation is but that's not a requirement in other words if you're not showing emotion I'm not going to answer your prayer that there is nowhere in the Bible that you can make that connection that's why I think it's, it's perhaps better to translate that earnest slash persistent. 
praying. And that does not necessarily require emotion. It often does. You're right, in our century, the Pentecostal movement is often intentionally very emotional. But I I don't want to, and I think that would be going against how the Lord wants us to understand prayer. Emotion may be a part of your praying, but it's not a requirement for me to answer your prayer. I mean, the, the thing is, and I, I know we've talked about this before, what, what is important for us in the 21st century is to re-engage how the scriptures talk about prayer. Rosalind Rinker, I love her definition. It's a dialogue between two people who love one another. In other words, we are talking to God. He talks to us through his word and so on. But it's this ongoing, earnest, persistent, constant prayer. You are talking to the Lord about everything you do. Not necessarily verbalizing your mouth moving, but it's just this conscious, just bringing the Lord into everything you do as you talk to him, talk with him, share with him everything that's happening during your day. But then there are times of fervent, earnest, persistent, focused prayer. And in this context, it was corporate. I mean, because, you know, these various people meeting in John Mark's mother's home there. Um, uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but all of that, the, the, whole, the whole issue of prayer is really, in, in terms of its, its the holistic way of it's presented in the Bible, is rarely really preached on. Because it's, 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 it's all over the place in the Bible. But yet, how do we, how do we think about it today in our busy lives and all the stuff that we do? Again, earnest, persistent, continual. Paul says in 1 Thess 5, Pray without ceasing. So it's just that it's a lifestyle prayer. And that's what's hard for us, but a lifestyle prayer. I've often been in, in group prayer sessions. Mm-hmm. I hear somebody pray and they're eloquent and very um, strong in how they express themselves. And I, I think, surely that's going to move God's <laughs> Well, I'm just. Yeah. Simple little farm boy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're his child. <laughs> I am a farm boy. But anyway, <laughs> do you understand what I'm asking? I do, I do. And of course, the beauty of our faith is that it doesn't matter whether you're eloquent and you're praying, praying and language and all of that. You're theologically sound. You've dotted every I, crossed every T, and all that stuff. That's not important to God. Again, I mean, it isn't the eloquence of our praying. It is that we are praying. And the Lord puts it very simply. Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find. I mean, the point of what the Lord is saying is there. God answers your prayers. It's more of the motive of sincerity. I think so. I, I think so. That's why I, I, I used to love to hear my children pray when they were young, and it's just, I mean, their prayers are so ridiculously simple, you know, but it's just because it's that, Jesus talks of that childlike faith, and you see it in the, uh, you see it in the prayer, prayers of a child, or the prayers of somebody really, really hurting, agonizingly, and they can't even hardly articulate a prayer, and just, just something like, God, help me, I am in such pain, or whatever the situation might be. Um... And there are, there are two other factors about prayer which I just find, uh, for me, 
they're almost beyond me being able to really intellectually grasp it. But two things. Number one, Jesus tells us he's praying for us. He intercedes for us. And Romans 8, the Holy Spirit is also interceding. And he, he, Paul's language, when we can't express ourselves in words, the Holy Spirit takes that and formulates it into um, parable, to, a, to the Father. I mean, that is just, think about that for a minute. Regardless of your situation, whatever, you have two members of the Trinity praying for you. Pardon me? Yeah, I, well, that's what I mean. It just it helps us to understand two things there, too, how important prayer is to God. I mean, it's really important to him. And I think the second thing is that even when we can't articulate, I mean, we don't exactly know how to pray about whatever it is, we know two things. The Son of God is praying for us to the Father, and the Spirit of God is praying and interceding and taking our grunts and groanings and inarticulate we don't even quite know how to put this into a prayer, and the Holy Spirit does. That's just, oh, man. So the big thing is keep praying and keep talking. Yeah, and do so, uh, as you're talking about, do so, you know, prayer has thanksgiving and praise and adoration, but then the request, the interceding for others, etc. that expectancy, um, I'm teaching 1 John in one of my other Bible studies, and we're in 1 John 3. It's a very difficult passage, but the thing John says there, and with confidence you go to the Father in prayer. That's, that's it, with confidence. That's a great word. Trust and confidence and certainty. It's my relationship and so the confidence. Now I take something to him, he's going he's gonna to answer yeah. In light of that, you, you often or have you thought about or wondered why Paul quit after three times of asking for the removal of the thorn of flesh? The only thing I can, I, I know what you're saying there, because that is, it would seem to me, keep, keep praying. But I think it has to be something to do with the way the Lord answered it. My grace is sufficient with you for you. And in your weakness, my strength is revealed. So, Paul, I'm not going to take this away. Because it helps keep you in a dependence on me. Because you're weak in this area, my strength will be magnified through your weakness. I, it has to be. He was satisfied. Okay, I got it, Lord. I understand. Some people try to make a big, well, it's three times like, you know, three couple of different Jesus forgives Peter three times. That may be, there may be something to the three, but I think the point is, after he'd asked the Lord, he was just convinced, this, the Lord, this is part of God's grace for me. And I accept it. Johnny Erickson Tata, I'm sure you all know who she is, she, she's done the same thing. She's convinced that God is using her quadriplegic situation for his glory, and she's no longer going to ask him to remove it. This was a long time ago she reached that conclusion. I think I saw another hand out of the corner of my eye. So, or didn't. So one has to imagine, in the case of these Jerusalem Christians who were praying for Peter, they'd see what happened to James. Yeah. And they knew, and they loved Peter. They knew he would be executed, because that's what Herod agreed. Yeah. So there was some certainty in their mind about what was his course with Peter. Yeah. 
Plus, they must have been very concerned about the future of the church. And here's a major pillar mm -hmm. to be taken away. So you can imagine that there was a, an earnestness. That's right. Genuineness. That's right. That God respected somehow. That's right. That's right. There's a question about that. The Jewish leadership still see that as a success because Peter basically left Jerusalem. Even though Herod killed the guards and got away, he escaped, left the stage the flight. Did the Jewish leadership see that still as a win because now he's not there? Jerusalem That's a great question. Number one, it says he departed. It doesn't say he ran. It doesn't. You know, he, this isn't an escape. That's not the language, the huh? He the right. But I think Luke is telling us something else there that is really important. It's a very difficult thing for the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, and I'm not speaking critically of them. I'm just it's just a fact. They, they, it's hard for them to accept the diminishing role of Peter here. Peter should be prominent, but he's not. And it, it's why Luke tells us, Peter says, go tell James. And we know from subsequent chapters, we get to chapter 15, James is head of the church in Jerusalem now. And so by this time, A.D. 43, roughly, by this time, James, this is not James was executed, this is James, the brother of Jesus, is emerging as head of the Jerusalem church, which means, and this is, this is generally the way it's understood, Glenn, God wants Peter to do other things now. And it just doesn't tell us where he's going. From the church's side, absolutely. I get that. Right. But from the Jewish perspective... Oh, they don't even care. They, they don't even care. Not at I mean, at this point, they could care less that he's going. I mean, in that sense, I mean, yeah, good, yes, great, but what we wanted to happen to the church hasn't happened. This is a great, I mean, in other words, decimating, the, cutting off the top of the leadership. That hasn't happened. And it's just, Luke, there's so much Luke doesn't tell us. It's frustrating to me because I want to fill in all the lines. I want to, you know, and we just, we don't, he doesn't tell us that. He's giving us the overview, giving focus to the really key events. And to drive their leadership is absolutely insane. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. it's an unstructured environment for them that was a very structured world. And right. every time they think they got rid of one leader of the new church, another one comes up. And it's as bad as we see, like, the insurrect insurrections. Yeah. Like the American Revolution and what we did to win that, we don't, they're not we're not fighting by the rules. Um, so they, they That's for sure. That's for sure. Let's look at chapter thirteen and get the, the introduction. We still have three and a half minutes, and give every one of those. Don't shut your Bible. A couple of you were closing your notes. Knock it off. Class isn't over yet. I get that all. Now, there were in the church at Antioch. Now, Luke wants us to make sure we understand we're back in Antioch now. Chapter 13, the main focus is Jerusalem, not 13. We're in Antioch. Prophets, and there were prophets and teachers. Now, let's make sure we really understand those two terms. The prophets, that, that focus is not so much on being able to tell the future. It's declaring already revealed truth. And the word teacher is didaskalos, which is instruction 
formal instruction in doctrine. So proclaiming already revealed truth and systematic, clear instruction in doctrine. Who's doing that? Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Saul is also known by his Latin name, Paul. So what is, what is Luke doing? He's telling us who are the key leaders and teachers in the church at Antioch. This is a Christian. This is where uh, uh, people were first called Christians. We saw that back in chapter 11. And we saw that Barnabas went up to Tarsus to get Saul to bring him back to be one of the teachers. And so what it's telling us here, now I want you to notice something. Luke goes out of his way. Simeon, who's also called Niger. That means he's black. He came from Africa. Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is in northern Africa, roughly where modern-day Libya is. And Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. That's Herod Antipas, one of the sons of Herod the Great. So what did he tell you? This guy was a very powerful political official. And then Saul. So, I mean, just you just look at that and you say, wow. There's ethnic diversity. There's racial diversity. And there's also socioeconomic diversity because you have somebody from the court of Herod Antipas. Herod the teacher. This is really significant. This is in the church at Antioch. These are the teachers and ones who are declaring, proclaiming the truth. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Separate apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So this is really kind of neat. In the midst of corporate worship, corporate fasting, spiritual disciplines, the Holy Spirit moves and sets aside two of the guys two of the top leaders of the church, two of the the most valuable teachers and prophetic declarers of the truth. Sorry, they're going to have to leave Antioch now. I have something more for them to do. I mean, just think about that. You're just a member of the Antioch church. Wait a minute, Lord. Choose Joe over there. We don't need him. Don't take Saul and Barnabas. No. God takes the people he's prepared. And how long has he been preparing Saul? Well, he studied at the University of Tarsus as a young man. He then studied under the greatest rabbi of the first century, Gamaliel I. Then he spent 13 years. Because from when he met Christ on the Damascus Road till this point, it's 13 years. Now he's ready. So God always prepares people. Now he's ready. And this is what's going to lead to the first, this introduces us and sets the groundwork for the first missionary journey, which is what we will study. Now, you, if you want to study this with me, you've got to have the map. Because we're going to be going through a lot of the map. So I want you to know these places. It'll be on the quiz. I'm going to give you a blank map, and you have to fill in all the blanks. Now, when I say those things, I'm always lying, as you know. But it's a sacred lying just to get you stimulated and encouraged. Okay? Uh, Woody. I have a question about the teachers and prophets 
they teaching about Jesus Christ that he died and was resurrected? Or are they organizing? That's great. It's prophets proclaiming already declared truth. Didaskala is this is a person who is instructing in doctrine. My sense is because of my sense is Saul's one of the guys doing that. Because we talked about those 13 years, particularly those 10 years he's up in Tarsus. I think Paul is thinking through everything and organizing and systemizing the doctrinal truths of everything the Old Testament had said prophetically about the Messiah and everything that's happened. That's why these 13 epistles are the chief doctrinal sources. Just think of the book of Romans alone. That's a theological masterpiece. You don't, you don't come up with that just off the top of your head in two days. This is, this is a lot of study, a lot of thinking through and systematizing. That's what Paul's teaching. And that's why it's in this church. That's the kind of, that should be, we should take that seriously. Teaching systematic doctrine is one of the important things of the church. It's one of its important roles. And you see that happening here. Well, we've got to quit. I'm going to pray and we'll get out of here. Next week we start the first missionary journey. Have the maps close by because we're going to cover that. And at least I think it's important for you to just see it, you know, whether you remember it or not, you at least get to see the geography of what Paul's doing. Thank you, Lord, for a good class, good discussion. Thanks for those good questions about prayer. Thanks for the, the concern to keep all this organized well, to make sure the names make sense and we can identify who these people are. Uh, this shows us again, Luke is a good historian under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's telling us in detail things that are happening. That's so important. It just confirms this is all important to you. These people are important to you. And you want the record of exactly how the church is growing in the book of Acts. So it's exciting to study it from that vantage point. And we uh, just see again that you're a God of detail, a God who's working providentially, working out your plan, and that plan is Acts 1-8 in the book of Acts. And we've seen it just fulfilled each step. Now we're about to look at the last part of the, of the strategic plan of Jesus, the uttermost parts of the earth. And Paul's going to be the one who's going to lead that, and this is a fantastic passage from 13 on through the end of the book. So thank you for the privilege you give to me to teach and just to lead these guys through Scripture, and we pray for your blessing on each one of them as we go our separate way. We want to represent you well, Lord. Help us to do that. We pray for Jim tomorrow as he has his next treatment. Pray that will go well. Continue to pray that this will be a success in bringing remission to the cancer, and we just trust him to you. May the side effects be minimal. So we commit the day to you now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.